anyone tell you what you can't do. You're the captain of your soul, the master of your fate. This is Tall Hungry Girl Talks, a podcast about feeding your growth. Follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. Welcome to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today I am interviewing John Felchicchio. He serves as the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development in Washington, D.C., and also as Mayor, Mayor Meryl Bowser's Chief of Staff. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, thank you for joining the podcast. Um, so your friends would describe you as direct and dedicated. Those are direct quotes. I did, I did some <laughs> reconnaissance <laughs> for this interview. How would you describe yourself? Who are you? Well, since I'm direct, I want to know who said that. <laughs> uh, no, I, um, I really think that uh, I appreciate that assessment uh, because I do try to be direct because I think a lot of folks, especially in D.C., uh, sometimes speak around things. And I think and government some, in general, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you could be direct without being rude, right? So being direct, I think, is good because it tells people kind of what you need to see from them and kind of sets an expectation. Uh, so I think being direct is actually a good thing. Um, and then dedicated. I do like what I do. Uh, so I do, um, you know, spend a lot of time doing it. I know I'm saying do a lot. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's yeah. the third D. Yeah. Um, it's just doing. I like being busy. Um, and I like the work that I do. We also have like a time limited, um, like, well, time limited period. Because we really have four years. Uh, and you know... Uh, that that time goes fast. Uh, for everything you want to do, you've got to like be dedicated. You've got to be direct in order to get things done. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a fair assessment. Yes. Like how you're bringing it all back. And you are from New Jersey. I am. I am. So I'm from New Jersey. Yeah, so Jersey. is that part of the direct and dedicated? Is that where some of that comes from? I think so, yeah. I mean, I learned my work ethic definitely from my family, from my parents. Uh, my parents are both educators. Uh, public school educators, uh, my mom, pre-K teacher, uh, and my dad was an administrator, all sorts of uh, mm -hmm. administrator. Um, and they always worked hard and taught us to do the same. Mm -hmm. So that's some good Jersey values. Yes, absolutely. So how has DC changed since you got here? Wow, so I got here in 1997. Um, so it was definitely a different DC. I think it was seen as sort of a government town uh, with great universities, so I came to go to Catholic University. Um, and now the cultural scene is not just at the Smithsonian's. The cultural scene is really across the city. Um, and it's great because it's for Washingtonians who've been here, uh, the sort of the vibrancy of go-go uh, across the city now, and, uh, but an emerging social scene and cultural scene in, in the restaurants and the food scene that's here. Um, it's really changed uh, and matured uh, so much faster than even I have. Uh, so I came here in 97 uh, to go to school and I've been here pretty much uh, ever since. Yeah, so speaking about um, the cultural scene, because I, I've been here not as long as you, but since 2006, and I have seen a drastic change in the cultural scene. Um, but that leads me to my next question. So Washington, D.C. is interesting, is in an interesting position because it's the, central, it's the center of federal power for the country. 
But as many of us know, um, the local government and its residents have limited power, specifically within Congress, because DC has no voting representation. And if you spent any time here, you've likely seen the license plates taxation without representation. I remember seeing that when I first moved here and I was like, what? <laughs> it's a very bold statement and I love it. Well, it's direct. <laughs> it's, it's direct, yes. <laughs> Staying on that theme. Um, however, Mayor Bowser has yielded her influence and power in other ways, particularly with arts. So going back to kind of the cultural changes in the city, on June 1st, um, amid the George Floyd protest in DC, law enforcement officers receiving direction from President Trump's administration used tear gas to forcefully clear peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square, creating a path for President Trump to walk from the White House to St. John's Episcopal Church for a photo op. Many of us saw it on, on television. Um, and in response, Mayor Bowser commissioned a Black Lives Matter mural on the street leading to the White House, which she called an affirming message for justice, more peace, and fairness in policing. Who came up with this idea? And how do you think this has influenced the social justice movement in the local area and also the country? Because it was, I mean, it received a lot of media coverage, not just from you know the normal yeah. Washington Post, Washington Times, but everywhere. Yeah, no, it really did. And I, I mean, can I tell you the story a little bit of it? Um, I was with uh, the mayor in our office um, the day after uh, what you just described. So the day after uh, the federal forces pushed out into a DC street, pushing back peaceful protesters in order to get a photo op for the president. And um, when we went, uh, we were at the office and we were going to go meet with some faith leaders who were on 16th street. Uh, who wanted to actually go and pray outside the church that Trump held the Bible up. And I don't know if you remember, but they yes. said, is that your Bible? And he said, it's a Bible. Yes, um, it was upside down. It was upside down. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it was uh, this group of faith leaders, including some from St. John's, who wanted to go in front of the church. Well, the federal line was still there. So the mayor actually uh, went to meet with them and wanted to see what was happening herself. And uh, she came up to the federal line and she couldn't go past them. So the first thing she did was tell our police chief to work with her partners in the federal law enforcement to push back. It was a DC street. There was no reason that they had pushed into a DC uh, street and should be back to the federal um, portion of the street, which is actually below each uh, street Northwest. And, um, and they did that that evening um, and DC police you know, took uh, control of the area. But having uh, been with the mayor, she wanted to make sure that we had to change the tone of what was happening. It couldn't just be a back and forth with who was sort of mightier um, by who could throw uh, the most people aside to make their point. So that's where she thought uh, we should designate it Black Lives Matter Plaza and really enliven it with art. Mm -hmm. um, and so she actually commissioned a group of artists uh, through our Department of Public Works. Because uh, DC has a mural project. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's our murals DC. So mm -hmm. what happened was instead of picking one artist, they actually pulled together a group of artists. This was kind of the day after she went and couldn't get by and couldn't get to St. John's Church. It's probably like the next day she said, I want to designate the plaza. Art has to be a part of it because we really have to like show people, one, mark the space that's DC's but also show people that this is a place to gather. Um, and so that's where the mural came.
came to be. Um, and that's um, really what you saw sort of around the country and around the world. We saw them uh, in a you know, number of cities uh, in the US, but also internationally. Um, and you're right, it got media attention from obviously all of our local press, but really press around the world. But it was a, it was a turning point because it made the moment not, again, just about who was right by might, but who was right simply because they were right. Yeah. And so I think for folks, it was a moment of pride, uh, whether you're black or not, that you saw how somebody could push back on a president without using force, but with using people. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's something that I think is what was so moving and why it got so much attention around the world. Yeah, I thought it was a really creative use of soft power. And um, also just, it, it ended up being like a cultural movement too as well. And I, I just thought it was, it, was, it made me proud to be, um, I can't say I'm a Washingtonian because I live just across the bridge in Arlington, <laughs> but it made me proud to reside in this area and be associated with DC. Um, well, I like how you said too, it's soft power, because just because you use soft power doesn't mean you could be as strong as the president. Yes. And that's what she showed. Yeah, that there is like, yes, you may have power over, you know, the troops that you deployed, but these streets are still ours. They're still the people's streets. And I think it signaled too, like, who was still welcome here? Like, this is an inclusive city. And so that was, that was pretty amazing. And I think people understood that message yeah. pretty, pretty clearly. No, it was great. And the outpouring of support, I remember, like, she talked to so many people that week. And one of the interviews she did for his show, I guess it's kind of a podcast, but also streaming, was uh, Little Wayne mm -hmm. wanted to talk to her. And he was like, I can't believe I'm talking to you after what you just did. You know? And for her, it was about reaching an audience that she wouldn't have otherwise to tell people exactly that, that you don't need to be violent in order to bring about the change that you want to see. Yeah. And so I think it was a turning point, um, not just in DC in terms of the tone of the protest, but also um, really just kind of uh, showed President Trump for what he is, yeah. which is a bully. Yes, yes. Um, and then another benefit of the clash and, resu and resulting mural um, was that more citizens in the country became aware of the fact that DC has no voting representation in Congress because a lot of people were questioning, okay, why are these federal troops, why can't she call up these federal troops and stuff like that? And I think it brought awareness to DC statehood. So in March, the House of Representatives, I think it got pushed a little bit, but they're holding a District um, of Columbia statehood hearing. Um, what would change if DC was to get statehood? Yeah, so before I go to that, when you're right to say that it brought attention to it, in fact, there was a uh, hearing on DC statehood in the House of Representatives in September of 2019. Uh, the hearing happened, uh, the bill was later marked up, but the whole House hadn't voted on it. Uh, and the mural was put in, I think on June 5th or June 6th. Uh, DC actually got a vote uh, for statehood in the full House of Representatives on June 26th. So just three weeks deal, later. Because this has been yeah. a long time coming yeah. for and this. And for folks in the area, uh, Steny Hoyer actually came out to Black Lives Matter Plaza a few days after it was installed to tell the mayor that he was committed to have a vote on DC statehood and he was gonna push it on the floor 
uh, for a vote later that month. So that was, uh, it's true that that did bring attention to the movement. Um, and so on DC statehood, uh, so DC is unique in the American system. Uh, we're a school district, a city, a county, and a state all in one. Uh, so the mayor is all of those things. She's the, uh, the mayor, the county executive, and the governor uh, all in one. Um, but we also have, um, and that sounds like it would be very advantageous uh, if you're the mayor's chief of staff, and it is uh, because decision-making is really, uh, really consolidated. Yeah, centralized. Yeah, it's yeah. really centralized. But all of our laws and our budget have to go up to the Congress to get approved. Now, usually that happens passively, and members don't do anything. But uh, members of Congress, especially when there are just, like, I don't mean to say this political, but when there are Republicans in charge, uh, they try to use uh, DC uh, to test programs that they want to see or to test uh, legislation that they want to see. And so we don't have a vote in the Congress, uh, either in the House or in the Senate. Um, and that is just an Because uh, there's injustice. no representation in the Senate, but there's representation in the House of Representatives. They just can't vote. They just Correct? can't vote. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have a voice, but not a vote yeah. in the House. We pay taxes, just like every other American. Our residents go and fight in wars and die in wars. Um, and we really need to fulfill our full American citizenship. And the only way to do that is to make D.C. the 51st state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Like, what role do municipalities such as D.C. play in cultural movements? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, we saw the influence that Mario Bowser had, the mayor had, with the Black Lives Matter Plaza. But is there a responsibility? Do you think there's a responsibility? Oh, no, absolutely. I think it has to be part of what we do, whether it's in schools and making sure there are arts programs so that uh, children are exposed uh, to the arts and know that it's a viable, uh, not just hobby but a viable career path um, and that um, we can support it by uh, support the arts by uh, investing in them so by making grants to arts organizations to um, really when you think about it uh, people a lot of times think of like the Chinatown Penn Quarter area and think of the Capital One Arena uh, which is a really important part of our cultural landscape but there's also across the street the Shakespeare Theater and that has even more nights of activity pre-pandemic yeah. uh, and post-pandemic uh, than the Capital One Arena. So it really is part of not just uh, something that's nice to have, but it's actually part of our economic engine. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things that has made it hard to consider leaving DC is that we have a, a very vibrant culture here, that there's always so many different things to do. There's so much diversity. Um, so, but you know, and a lot of people come here for that too. So um, so getting into very specifically your wheelhouse of how culture fits into economic development. So how does it fit? Yeah, no, it's uh, a critical part of it. So when you think about um, DC, uh, before the pandemic, we had about 800,000 jobs in the city. So we've lost about 53,000 jobs. The majority of those were in the hospitality industry. So uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, retail, and entertainment. And uh, uh, we also are seeing in D.C. Uh, before the pandemic in 2019, we had a record number of visitors, 20 more, 24 million visitors. Uh, and that was like the 10th consecutive year of an increase of visitors to the district. 
What that means is that for each of those visitors, they leave behind money. And that's a good thing for us, and it supports a vibrant cultural scene, um, but it also means jobs for our residents. So of those 53,000 jobs that were lost, uh, more than two-thirds of them were in the hospitality industry. Uh, so for me, it's something when we think about our recovery, and we think about it in a couple different segments, we think of immediate relief that we have to give to businesses, uh, recovery, which is to bring us back to where we were, and then growth. Uh, so when we think about those stages, the arts is definitely a part of each of those stages of our comeback. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that I wanted to interview you is because my podcast, the tagline is Feeding Your Growth. Um, and so for listeners, it's always about learning and growing. And you are the deputy mayor for planning and economic development, which is so centered around growth. Um, but my question is, does growth always promote does that always mean progress? And if not, how do we harmonize those two elements? Yeah, so I think you definitely, um, you need to continue to grow in order for there to be more prosperity. So on, in that economic way, we have to see more growth. But we also need to make sure, think of it like your body. Uh, if you go to the gym and you're lifting weights and your arms get bigger, that growth is good. If you don't go to the gym and you just go to the bar or the restaurant and yeah. your stomach grows, that's probably bad growth. So we need to make sure uh, in the economy and in our city that we actually see growth in the right places. Uh, and so one thing that we're really focused on is how we grow black businesses. Uh, so right now, if you look at uh, black businesses versus uh, non-black businesses in the DC area, this is kind of more of a metro area, um, Black businesses that are employers have average uh, annual revenue of about $1.7 million. If you look at non-black businesses, the average revenue is $7.7 .7 million. So that difference, and you can go down all the different metrics, there's a big disparity uh, in similar businesses uh, to what they employ, to the number of businesses, also the number of employees. And so if we grow black business to the proportional level, uh, of their non-black counterparts, that means that we would have over uh, 800,000 new jobs in the metro area. We would also see that there would be like $289 million, or excuse me, billion dollars of additional economic uh, revenue uh, in, the, in the metro area. So growth is good, but we need to make sure that everyone is growing, and we also need to think about it through an, a lens of equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of those, I guess, tools of equity that you're using to grow black businesses? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of direct support programs. Uh, so think of it as grants. Mm -hmm. um, so a couple that we have out right now uh, this month are um, our Neighborhood Prosperity Fund, which looks at uh, retailers and food access points and allows us to invest in those businesses. Um, and then there's also a new program that we have uh, called a local DC local manufacturing grant, which will be a $1 million grant uh, to makers who want space to actually make their goods in DC. We know that there are a lot of makers in DC uh, who do great design, but usually they have it manufactured somewhere else. We want to bring that right into DC, and we could do that because right now there's actually like an abundance of retail space. Uh, so we can make more products here in DC. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know that. Um, when we make more products here, we want those products not just to be sold here in DC, but to actually export out of DC. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So these grant programs are one way that we invest in uh, black businesses uh, because we we make sure that it's focused kind of geographically, and that's one of the ways that we do it. Mm -hmm. uh, another way uh, for folks uh, that you know that are in the development business, yes. we actually have uh, more um, focus on supporting uh, what we call, there's a federal standard called socially disadvantaged businesses. Um, and so for our real estate solicitations, we now only allow those to be awarded to teams that are led by socially disadvantaged businesses. Mm. And what that will do is make sure, we've always had a requirement that they're included, but to put them at the front of the team makes sure that they're the ones who are making the decisions about how a project moves forward and who actually works on the project. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another way that we're doing at a, a level where from makers to community builders, uh, we want to make sure there's more opportunity uh, for black businesses. Mm -hmm. And we are sitting in a business, a minority-owned business right now in Washington, D.C., um, Bitter Grace Boutique, and a lot of the products here are locally sourced, too, to that end. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about um, D.C. is there are so many local shops and restaurants that it's not like a chain restaurant shop yeah. city. How, how do you, how did, I guess, was there any policy behind that besides what you spoke of that for, um, you know, this mayor and mayors past that have helped cultivate that? Yeah, the, the restaurant scene here in particular is, has a really great portion of which is, is independent restaurants. Yes. And that is something that like- I we're, love it. Yeah, that <laughs> we're- a tall, hungry girl. <laughs> that we're really excited about. It makes it more unique and yeah. it actually, um, you know, we've seen that even some of the businesses that have started here have spread like across the country. Mm -hmm. Sweetgreen was started right in Georgetown um, as one example of a business and it's now all across the country. And um, Busboys is, that was started in Bus D.C. Boys, yeah. yeah. Now it's in Virginia and I think, is Maryland, it Maryland? yeah, because yeah. there's one in Baltimore as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and Pizza is one that's actually moved uh, up and down the East Coast. Uh, actually, in my hometown, they opened an End Pizza, uh, which Jersey City, New Jersey, is kind of a big pizza place already. So yeah. to see that we're actually exporting something from D.C. Uh, is really exciting. But I think that... Um, it kind of lends itself to our identity as kind of a, a city that wants to be known uh, for more than just being a government town. Yeah. Uh, so that vibrant cultural scene is important, but also a vibrant food scene, a vibrant, vibrant independent retail scene. Uh, we're, as Mayor Bowser says, we're not your grandfather's Washington, D.C. Yes. There's a lot more to it than just the Amen. federal government yeah. and the mall. Yeah. And to, while I love the Smithsonian Museums, I used to work for a production company and we've done, you know, I did exhibits for Smithsonian Museums. It, like you said, it is so much more, the city is so much more than that. There's, you know, when you come to DC, visit those, but also, you know, check out everything else, the local businesses and yeah. yeah. Well, and that's actually another thing we want to do is make sure that DC businesses are represented in those places. So at the Smithsonian's oh. to make sure that when somebody comes, they're not just buying one of those FBI t-shirts that you see, <laughs> but they're actually getting something made by a DC re yeah. resident. Um, you probably have seen the shop uh, made in DC stores yeah. that are all over the city. Yeah. Uh, you know where the best one, uh, the best uh, revenue generating uh, uh, made in DC store is? Where? Well, this is of course pre-pandemic, but at National Airport. Oh. Because people want something that's yes. actually authentically DC. Yes. Um, so 
I probably have one of those FBI t-shirts or had one when I was a kid and visited DC. Yeah, yeah, we all did. Um, or the CIA hats, which are great too. Uh, but that's not like the authentic DC product that you bring home that you show somebody that you actually uh, thought of them when you bought it. You know yeah. what I mean? And so uh, to know that that kiosk at uh, National Airport was one of the best uh, shops of all the shop made in DC shops really shows that there's an appetite. There's a market out there for authentically made local products. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about like the preservation of the culture here because it is federal government it's you know a very international city um kind of moving to like for decades dc was known affectionately as chocolate city and i think it still is um to to many black americans but really to everyone uh because it was predominantly african-american um until recently like the last i think 10 to 15 years um and a lot of those black Americans were native Washingtonians whose families had been here for generations. So how do native Washingtonians fit into the equation of economic growth? And how do we preserve the culture? I know that Go-Go is now, I think, the official music of, of mm-hmm. DC, which yep. is exciting. Um, but yeah, how do, they, how do they fit in the equation of, of growth? Yeah, so I think at every turn, we're looking for ways to make our prosperity more inclusive. So I talked a little bit about the grant programs that we have, but we're also focused a lot on um, um, technical assistance and training for people who want to become entrepreneurs. We actually have a really great program called the Aspire program, uh, which actually works with returning citizens in order to teach them how to start a business, write a business plan, and uh, execute that business plan. So we have... uh, really seen that there is uh, an appetite for people to be entrepreneurs. I think what the pandemic has uh, done is really made people evaluate what they're doing for yes. work to see if it's fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, so yes. we're, we're working with other organizations too uh, to make sure that people at any level of entrepreneurship have a resource and that technical assistance in order to get started. I think the other thing that we've found out is there are businesses that have been operating in the district that are run by uh, native Washingtonians uh, that when we have these grant programs, sometimes they don't have every form that they need to, uh, to apply for it. Um, and so the technical assistance part of it is a big one. And I know that's like a word that sounds uh, maybe a little bit scary to people, uh, but these are all good, whatever we ask for in our grants uh, applications are all like really fundamentals of what you should have for your business anyway. So we don't ask for anything that you shouldn't have already. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do have to do is because people are so focused on running their business, on making pivots in the pandemic, is we provide that technical assistance in order to make sure that they're ready to apply for grants when we have those opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I guess like in terms of like cultural preservation, what are t- the... I mean, we talked about the the go-go because, I mean, you know, cities change and all of that things. Like, are there, are, are they, there going to be museums or how, how oh, yeah. are, how is that like culture going to be known to the people that move in and out of this city so they know like where, where, okay, you're, you're joining us. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. You know. Yeah. So Which there, I was definitely made aware of when I came here. Like and I loved it, you know, but it was definitely joining DC versus DC. Yeah. yeah. And and 
native Washingtonians are why you fall in love with DC. Yes. Right? Because all my best friends are native Washingtonians. It's the way you um, actually see the city in a different way. Yeah. If you just wanted to see the uh, mall and the Smithsonian's, you probably wouldn't stay here very long. Yeah. But it's really uh, the uh, residents, the neighbors that you meet uh, that make you want to stay here. So yeah. on GoGo, it's actually exciting because uh, there will be a GoGo museum. Uh, it's going to be in Historic Anacostia. Um, so we're excited about that. We're actually working with them um, in order to have um, uh, like an event space and a restaurant that's adjacent to it in order to make sure that uh, it draws people there and could be kind of a meeting spot. Uh, so there will be a GoGo Museum. We also have a program where we're actually trying to archive uh, GoGo and uh, really create like a story bank, uh, but also preserve the music mm -hmm. um, as well as um, stories and uh, just like you would do for uh, if you were trying to submit something to the um, Smithsonian, we want to create a DC collection of GoGo in order to preserve the culture of DC. Oh, that's awesome. I know. I remember, gosh, I think it was like 12 or 13 years ago, I went to my first GoGo concert and I was like, oh my gosh, like I had never heard, like the, the beats are just, you know, the rhythm is, is completely different. And for, you know, my listeners across the country and um in the world uh, you know go go is a is a type of music that is very specific to washington dc it is so <laughs> yeah it is. and it actually one of the things that we found too is that um go go has been uh, a good bridge when we're trying to reach people who normally don't interact with government uh so we can work with go go artists in order to reach people about getting tested uh for coronavirus uh, it's well, very local. It's to the, very yeah. local. So uh, they have reach an audience that we just traditionally as government wouldn't be able to reach. Uh, and so when we talk about like our response to the pandemic, we want to make sure that we actually utilize partners in the GoGo community in order to reach people that we normally wouldn't be able to. So we've done it with things like testing and making sure that people wear a mask. Uh, but I'm sure we're going to do it again uh, in order to encourage people to get vaccinated as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we're slowly, I think as people get vaccinated, we're seeing, you know, the light, a little bit of light <laughs> at the end of this very dark year-long COVID tunnel. Um, where, I, I guess, where do you see DC fitting in all of this? Like, when do you anticipate things opening up? Or do they, do you, I mean, do, does the government really know? Yeah, well, there was some encouraging news from the CDC uh, just today, where they talked about how um, adults who are vaccinated, uh, what activities they can partake in. And it was encouraging because uh, it seems like if you're with uh, other vaccinated adults, uh, that you almost have like a new normal. Yeah. Um, and that's exciting, but it also means that we have to do more to get more people vaccinated. Uh, so DC right now, that we have a problem with the vaccine. And the problem is the demand is higher than the supply mm -hmm. is. Um, As is and, the case with yeah around, around the, the country. country. Yeah. yeah, what we see though the problem for us that's unique to DC is so each day, each workday again pre-pandemic, but each workday we grow by about eighty-seven percent. So our population nearly doubles each day, and when you look at how a vaccine is distributed, 
it's actually uh, distributed to residents, but also to essential workers. And you mean by growing because people are coming into the people city for work? People are commuting in. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, what? That <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Following you. Yes. Yeah, for, no. for listeners, like, yes, they're coming into the city to, com- you know. To, to yeah. do their commute. Yeah. And, and so what we see is that um, we're kind of divided. And they still come into the city, even though, like, a lot of office workers aren't coming into the city. Yeah. But a lot of essential workers, um, hospitality, um, medical, obviously health and medical uh, workers. And so our vaccine, our supply vaccine, gets divided between residents and those essential workers. I'm not complaining about having to vaccinate anyone, but what I am complaining about is the federal government hasn't taken into account that we grow by that much each day and we support so many workers in the region because this is where they work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the way that the federal government has allocated the vaccine is by population, not by the pool of potential people that you have to vaccinate. Mm-hmm. And so we're at a disadvantage in that way. And we actually, as a jurisdiction, are behind uh, where the lowest percentage of um, residents vaccinated compared to our supply and that's because we have so many uh, essential workers who live outside of the district mm-hmm. who come here now again our issue isn't with those workers our issue is with the federal government yeah really they should view it through an equity lens and realize that we need more vaccine uh, because we're the center of uh, government and um, and have so many workers come into the city yeah day. would statehood if, if D.C. was a state right now, would that change some of those power dynamics because there would be more control over allocation and such? Well, so it's a really good question. There's a lot of ways so um, that it could help because really when you have a congressperson who's going to vote and you have two senators, you have more uh, power mm-hmm. within the federal government. And so uh, really we've had to kind of use the bully pulpit, uh, and the mayor has done a great job of this uh, throughout the pandemic to really say what we need and to ask the federal government to fill it. But if we were a state, we wouldn't just have the mayor and a congressional delegate. We'd have two yeah. senators who would be advocating for us as well. Yeah. So I don't know if it would directly mean that we got more vaccine, but, but in terms of federal, ro- yeah. exactly, and mm-hmm. federal resources, including dollars, um, would flow to DC in a different way. Okay. Um, so what would you like for people to know about DC and the Bowser administration that they may not already know. Huh. <laughs> and I have one last question it's after that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a good closing question. <laughs> um, so I think the, uh, really as it relates to the pandemic, this is actually an interesting one, is that like we really have to walk this fine line. Um, actually, the mayor said it best. Like She traveled the world trying to attract businesses and visitors to D.C., so it pains us to no end to see the same businesses that we've been trying to flood with visitors now be operating at a limited capacity or in some cases be shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know a lot of people get frustrated and they want to be like out of this uh, situation where we have so many stringent health protocols, but they're all necessary. Yeah. Um, and so I know one thing that um, we've been really um, uh, deliberate about is that we don't need to be the first to reopen, um, but we need to do it in a gradual way so that we protect people. Um, And we know that this uh, pandemic has disproportionately hurt people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, And in DC, 
specifically African-American residents. And so we need to make sure that when we do open, we do it in a way that allows people to still protect themselves. Yeah. The longer we can stay closed or in this limited uh, posture, the faster our comeback is going to be on the back end. Yeah. Um, so I think the thing, and I know this isn't maybe as juicy as you'd like, <laughs> but it really does, uh, it does paint us, and we don't want to keep businesses closed. I've talking over the weekend with some gym operators, and they're like, we need group fitness back, um, indoor group fitness. And as much as we'd like that, our health metrics don't really um, say that we should be at that point just yet. Doesn't mean that we're not gonna get there, and we really wanna get there soon, but we need to do this in a gradual way. So I always say that progress uh, is gradual, but not slow. Yeah. Um, and so we're really on a gradual track to reopen. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right, that light at the end of the tunnel actually is a light. I think a couple times this year or over the course of the year, yes. we've seen the light at the end of the tunnel and it was yeah. really a train coming at us. Yes. But now I feel like with the vaccine, <laughs> yeah. it actually is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So we're gonna, we're gonna get there. As the days are getting longer, you're seeing more light outside and yeah, with, exactly. the, yeah, with COVID. Okay, so my last question for you. So when I started my career, I moved here for a job at the news hour. I had actually never been to DC when I moved here. Wow, wow. <laughs> so what would you say to people when DC opens back up, what would be your pitch to, you know, maybe someone in Oregon or someone on the West Coast for coming to DC besides the Smithsonian and the White House and all of that stuff? Like why, why would someone wanna come visit this city? Yeah, I mean, I think DC is really, and I know this might sound a little bit hokey, but it really <laughs> is kind of like a microcosm of the country. There yeah. are people from all over the country, but also the world here yes. in DC. And when you come here, you feel that diversity right mm -hmm. away. You feel that inclusiveness right away. Um, I can't wait to get back to all the festivals that we'll have. Yeah. Um, I know one thing that we're eyeing is a, a annual event that we have each year called Art All Night. It happens in September. Uh, it's art uh, installations across the city. And that's something that we're thinking about, like, all right, timing of the vaccine and when people will get vaccinated. Uh, we could really come back in the, in the fall for an outdoor event, which it annually is. And that is like a great way to see the city. Um, I try each year, although this is hard, I wouldn't recommend it, to get like to each of the eight wards of the city. And it is neat to see how vibrant the cultural scene is across the city um, and how it's different, but also is kind of tied together. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I would say about like, if you're not, uh, if you have never visited DC, you have to come and you should probably check out the Smithsonian and stuff. Yes. But you gotta find ways to get out to the neighborhoods as well uh, because that's where like our richness really is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great. I, I feel like 14th Street is kind of like the, the pathway through DC, yes, go to, you know, the Smithsonian's and the National yeah. Mall, but just keep traveling up 14th Street and really getting into the heart of the city and go on U Street and, and see, you know, the, the restaurants and businesses and, you know, 14th Street has changed so much with all the, the local businesses and stuff, so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, you, I, you gotta check out U Street, but then even like keep going up to Columbia Heights, yes. some of the best like Mexican, Salvadorian food, yes. uh, yeah. Central American food. Eat your way through DC. Eat your way through <laughs> DC. I mean, if you keep traveling north from there, you get to um, 16th Street Heights. Yeah. We have a graffiti museum too. Like uh, 
we have a lot of great murals, but this is actually like to street art, street graffiti um, museum, uh, you know, as you travel further up 14th Street. Um, so there's a lot to see, and, um, and I think people, when they come here, they do fall in love with it. Um, and that's what's uh, something that I think that appeal is not wearing off anytime soon. In yeah. fact, I think people are longing for it more yeah. uh, because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yes, I used to be an unofficial ambassador for Oregon, which I still am because it's my native state. <laughs> but now I feel like I'm becoming an unofficial ambassador for DC and, you know, just telling people how awesome of a city it is. So thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Yes, this is great. Yeah. Yes, thank you. And thanks for introducing the audience to DC in a new way. Yes, absolutely. Um, for other episodes, um, find me on tallhungrygirl.com and anywhere you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Spot, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. If you want to learn more, follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts.